And I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to spend the weekend with you. The invitation was very kind, and I trust as we've been praying together that the Lord will speak to all of our hearts and encourage us regarding the sacred truth of his word. What I would like to do this evening is talk about the value of apologetics in Christian testimony and in Christian life. Now, to do that, we'll, of course, have to define what apologetics is. It's one of those strange words that has an S on the end, but we use a singular verb with it. Apologetics are, you can say that too if you want to. But it is a subject, of course, of the defense, as it's usually thought of, of the Scripture. But what I really, really would like to do is look at how the Scripture defines it and how it is used in the Scripture. And we're going to find that that's a different emphasis, really, than the apologetics that you will learn if you go to a Christian bookstore or go online and read the likes of Norman Geisler or William Lane Craig or these other men who mightily used of God in in the way that God has used them, I think is remarkable, and we're going to give that ground to them. Still, it's shifted away a little bit from what I think the Bible really tells us apologetics is. So let's turn to the great text that is used, rightly, and in some ways wrongly, to defend Christian apologetics. That's First Peter chapter 3. Now, Peter, as you well know, is writing to a group of believers scattered because of persecution. He's encouraging them. There is purpose in persecution. There is opportunity in persecution. There is certainly personal growth that can come out of persecution, but there's also the opportunity to glorify God in persecution. So he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Don't be discouraged, he said. Live that Christian life. Be obedient, children. And so you're familiar with the general profile of the epistle. Now let's turn to chapter 3 and begin reading in verse number 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Knowing that ye are hereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So this is an encouragement by the apostle to be unified and to be compassionate and to show the Christian graces that bind you together. They're always important. They're even more important in the face of persecution. We need each other. We need the Lord. And he quotes from a time in David's life when he was in a lot of stress and distress. Psalm 34, when he had to change his behavior before Abimelech. And this is uh, an extended quotation from the psalm. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips from that they speak no lie, or sorry, speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and and his ears are upon, sorry, are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So this psalm is coming from a wonderful psalm of encouragement for those who are in in time of stress or trial. David says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. This is the psalm where David can say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. It's also the psalm that discusses the Lord in his affliction. He will keep all of his bones, not one of them will be broken. But in the middle of that, we have this very cheerful encouragement. Do you want to love life and see good days? Then it's very important that you live righteously before the Lord, that you eschew evil 
and that you seek and pursue the good, remembering that the eyes of the Lord are over everything and his ear is being attentive to those who call upon him for help. And then he says in verse number 13, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, a quote from Isaiah 8 now, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And here's the phrase that is so well known from this chapter. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that seeketh you, sorry, that asketh you for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Being always ready to give an answer to those who ask you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Now the answer that you're giving is the Greek word apologia, which means to give a verbal defense. And we could easily do a word study with this. We simply right-click the Strong's number on our eSword, and we have a drop-down box that tells us, shall we look in this book, or shall we look in the whole New Testament, or the whole Bible? Well, we decide we're going to look in the whole Bible. And so we come up with eight references, eight uses by the Holy Spirit of this word apologia. The first one is in Acts 13 and verse 1. Paul is ready to make his defense. He also uses it at the very end of his life when in 2 Timothy chapter 4 he talks about having to give his answer to Caesar. Now if you trace each of those through, you will understand, and this is really an important point and one that I want to use to encourage people who don't know that much about evolution, creation, arguments, who aren't versed in philosophy, who don't remember the difference between an ontological and a cosmological argument, and they think they wouldn't be any use for the Lord and that they couldn't be good apologists, let me encourage you that you can be a great Bible apologist and know nothing about any of those things. Because the apologies that are given in Scripture are personal testimony and reasonings from the Bible. When Paul goes to Mars Hill, for example, and we may look at Acts 17 a little bit together more carefully, he doesn't say, I want to begin by proving to you that God exists or that my God exists and yours don't. He doesn't prove it, he assumes it. All right? We're going to talk a little bit about presuppositionalism, that is, what you are allowed to presuppose when you are talking to somebody. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I don't want to talk about the different types of apologetics yet before I even define it properly. But I'll let this much out because it's very important. When you look at a person who says he does not believe the Bible, who says she does not accept the scriptures as true, and would be quite firm and adamant about that, you can understand that behind it, there is a witness in that person that will tell that person when he hears the Bible, this is true. Now, you can't get that in any other form of argument. You can't find that advantage any other in any other subject matter that you want to teach people about. But when you're coming to tell them about the Lord Jesus and about the scriptures, you have an ally. And we're going to understand that this chap- chapter is teaching us that it's not about us. It's about the Spirit of God. It's about the power of the Word of God. And when the Spirit of God is working on someone, they say in their mouth, this is not true, but in their heart, they say this is true. The Bible, in other words, is self-authenticating. We simply let it out, as Spurgeon famously said. Why do we try to have defenders around a lion's cage? What does the lion need? I have the extended quote in my... um, It's quite interesting in the uh, old English of of his era, but I, I think it's very pointed as well. He says, look you, he said, 
open the door, let the lion out. You've heard that analogy many times, but it's so true. The Bible looks after itself. We're going to find that out. So when people take this little verse out of context, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to those who ask you concerning the hope that is within you, remember in context, he's talking about people who are going to do it in meekness, who are going to do it in fear, who are going to sanctify the Lord God in their hearts, who have a background of credibility because they have been living righteously despite persecution and suffering. In that situation, those people have the ability to speak about what the Lord has done for them, and that is the apologetic they will give. Indeed, when Paul gives his apologetics throughout the Acts, it's his testimony. That's his answer. It's his testimony. So some people have asked me, when I meet a skeptic or meet a person who doesn't believe the Bible or who raises an objection, where shall I start? And my answer to them is, tell them what the Lord has done in your life. Be like the man who was born blind and say, I don't know that much, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. That's an apologetic, biblically speaking. That's giving an answer, a reason for why you believe. Now, if this was just about destroying oppositional arguments, meekness wouldn't matter, compassion and gentleness wouldn't matter, a righteous life wouldn't matter. It would only matter if you were a great arguer and if you could riddle the other opponent's arguments full of holes with all of your brilliant um, you know, assault. Well, that wins battles, but it doesn't win wars. It might drive people farther away. That's not what this verse is talking about. Now, having said that, you might say, well, why are you having this weekend then? <laughs> there, is, there are reasons for it. But it is not to try to force people into salvation or to drive them into the kingdom of God. That is God's work. And if we only would understand, and speaker included, that what the Lord really wants from us as we interact with people in the world is that we have been living our Christian faith before them so that when we say something, it has weight. Or more often when they ask us, as the context here says, they're asking you. Now let's stop for a moment and ask, when's the last time someone asked you? a reason for the hope that is within you. They saw maybe how you responded differently when other people in the same situation would have done this and cursed the Lord. You said that the Lord did this for a reason and that you were going to accept that reason even though it wasn't easy to get through. You know he was wise. You know he's loving. You know he has your best in mind. You know you're in his hand. You can, you know, that sort of uh, just a distinction like that could be very, very different for someone who's not used to seeing a Christian response to stress. Maybe it's the fact that you don't use the language of the world and that you don't use the jokes with the double meaning and you don't go out and carouse with the boys or the girls and you have a very different purpose in life and, and they go around in their circles, but your life is a linear thing because it's progressing somewhere. You're not just cycling every week in the same useless enterprises and activities like they think is life, but in fact you are on a path and you are progressing and you're making progress and you have your goal ultimately to go to heaven and take as many people with you as you can. And they see that's very different. Now in, in some cases they'll say, well, that's you, I'm I, I'm me, and you know I don't really want to be you. Until maybe some stress or trouble comes into their life 
Maybe they have a terminal diagnosis. Maybe they lose a loved one. And they they know at that point, maybe the Spirit of God is working in them. Maybe they have been, uh, been beginning to be evangelized by someone, or maybe they've uh, listened to, to a program or something that has piqued their interest. And they're going to come to you, and they're going to say, what makes you different? So do they do that? Do, uh, speaker is asking himself, do they do that? Or do we tend to become like the world in the way we respond to things, so that really they see no difference? It's so important early in Christian life to identify yourself as a Christian, to, to show that you're different, not just for merely being different's sake, but to show that you have a higher purpose in life and that you are going to represent someone every day of your life in your work and in your school so that when people look at you, they know that this man stands with God. This girl is the Lord's. And then the times come when they come to you and ask. Now, at that point, they've been, I think, softened. I think they have been dealt with by the Spirit of God. And they're not going to run into the problems that apologetics often faces of saying, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? At that point in their life, they want the Word of God, right? They're ready for it. And what you give them is your converse, the good conversations, the background, of course, but your testimony, and you tell them what the Lord has done for you. That doesn't mean they may not have an objection or a problem, but it means that, that the, you will handle it in this way. I've just finished reading a little book by John Whitcomb. Now, John Whitcomb is still with us. He's in his 90s. He's been a faithful servant of the Lord all his life. He's the co-author with Henry Morris in 1961 or so of The Genesis Flood, a very important book in creation evolution arguments and one that is still well worth reading. John Whitcomb spent much more of his life as a theologian than he was an apologist on creation, but he certainly was well-versed in both. Now, he tells his conversion in 1944 when he had come back from the war and was attending Princeton University. might have my years wrong. Anyway, that's not important is what happened. He was not raised in a Christian home. He attended the university. He saw the witness of some people. They asked him to come to a fellowship. He came and heard the word, and he was saved. And he immediately began to try to convince his roommate and all the people in his dormitory that the Bible was true. But he went about it the way I think some people think you have to do. You you go to the bookstore, you amass all these books of evidences, and you learn them all, you learn them cold, and then you go and you start to argue. And he got nowhere. People were not interested. So he went back to his mentor, one of the men who had led him to Christ, and he said, uh, I'm very frustrated. I've been trying to argue people into Christianity for the last six months, and I haven't got a single convert. And the man said, well, you know, why don't we go together and visit a couple of students? We had cards handed out at the beginning of the semester asking about any interest in the Princeton Christian Fellowship. And some people responded that they would like to hear more about it. And so we've got a couple of those contacts. Let's go talk to them in their dorm room. So they knock on the door and say, is Tom Smith there? Well, the door is open slightly and... Furniture starts to crash and people uh, clear their way out of the room through the back door and finally they have their victim, Tom Smith. 
Tom, did you sign a card at the beginning of the semester saying that you were interested in talking to someone from the Christian fellowship? And Tom said, well, you know, I suppose in a rash moment at the beginning of the semester I did that, but I've changed my mind. Now, six months of being at this great university have convinced me that the Bible can't possibly be the word of God. And so it comes bristling. He's getting ready to, to come in with some arguments, but the Lord, I think, held his mouth and uh, his, his, his older brother spoke. And he said, well, that's interesting, Tom. He said, what do you think? Um, is there anything in particular that I can help you with that you've learned in the last six months that has convinced you that the Bible is not the scripture? Well, of course, he couldn't think of anything. And then the man said, would you mind if I shared with you how I came to know the Lord and why I have become convinced that his word is truth. And the man said, well, I, he said, Tom Smith now, he said, I, 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 did, I did think of something. Jonah and the whale. So there's no way that a person can be swallowed by a whale and be alive three days later and come out. The Bible can't be true. And so that didn't seem to fluster this older brother too much. He said, well, you know, that's a very interesting story. In fact, the Lord Jesus used that story to speak of his own death and resurrection. One of the great stories of the Old Testament. He said, you know, can you just come with me and I'm going to show you how I came to know the Lord and why I came to accept his word is true. And he kind of just deflected it away from Jonah a little bit and got back to the point that he wanted to say how he had come to know the Lord and why he had personally come to believe the scriptures. Now, it turns out, if you want to be an evidential apologist, that, in fact, you can go and discover a man named James Barclay, who in 1893 was swallowed by a sperm whale off of the coast of the Falkland Islands and was picked up by one of Her Majesty's whalers. Uh, Two days later, the whale was anyway, and James emerged alive. And that is, in fact, uh, documented. You can easily Google that and get the story for yourself. My question is this, and this is the wisdom of this older man. Would that have worked? Would that have changed the man's mind? Absolutely not. Because when we come to the problem of the unbeliever, there are two issues. One is a lack of knowledge, and that can be easily fixed. You can easily inform people. Now, when you do that, of course, you have to take away misconceptions and error and replace them with proper understanding and truth. But when you have done that and you've done it well, you're no farther along to having that person saved because that person is an enemy of God, alienated from God, a kingdom, a member of the kingdom of the devil and is going to be opposed at every turn to every blandishment and everything that you think should work. It won't work without the spirit of God. You see this in John chapter 2 when the Lord uh, did the miracles. Of course, it says the beginning of miracles at Cana of Galilee, he began to do and showed forth his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You say, that's strange. I thought his disciples already believed in him. Well, they did already believe in him. But when they saw the miracles that he did, their faith was confirmed and strengthened. And one of the things we find apologetics is very good for is to strengthen the faith of those who already believe. It probably does more good in that area than any other. But it says, if we move a little bit farther along in John chapter 2, when he was at Jerusalem, many people observed the works that he did, 
and many believed in his name. That sounds impressive. It doesn't just say they had faith or they believed. They actually claimed to believe in his name. But then it says, but Jesus himself did not commit to them. Same word. They believed in him. He didn't believe in them. You see, that's odd. The oddness of it is this. Those were people who had come to assent mentally that this man must be from God because of the miracles that he did. But they had no faith in their heart. Their, their evil will was not bent. And ultimately, they would abandon that faith when the meals stopped coming and when the miracle show stopped. They had never been converted. Because the first problem, they had been confronted by evidence that they couldn't deny was taken care of. But the second and bigger problem with the human heart, that of depravity and of being an enemy of God by wicked works, had not been rectified. That would have to happen for them to be disciples. And once they were disciples, then the apologetics, then the proofs would greatly encourage and strengthen them. So my message from First Peter uh, chapter 3 is that it does matter how you live. It does matter how you respond to suffering. If you live a Christian life as you should, for the Lord's sake, as a willing servant of the man who died for you, if you're faithful to him in your work, if your testimony you build up very carefully, and if when you suffer you respond in a way that allows it to become an opportunity for the gospel, then you are set up to be the apologist that Peter is talking about. People are going to notice this, and they're going to come and say, why why don't you respond the way I respond? How can you have peace when I have torture and torment? Why do you have such confidence about the future when I look at it and it's all black and bleak? And you tell them. It takes days, weeks, months, and years to build up a good reputation, a good name. A good name is better to be had than riches. It takes one. This is so asymmetrical and seemingly so unfair. It takes one major sinful blunder to erase it all. Let us remember that. We must be on guard. We must be vigilant. The devil, our enemy, is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Again, we see that from 1 Peter 5. So let us remember that that reputation is more important than any words that come out of our mouths. And then, when a person asks us a reason for the hope that is within us, we do it with meekness and fear. Now, that doesn't matter, again, in argumentation. You don't have to be meek. Christopher, Christopher Hitchens was not meek. Okay, Certainly, Richard Dawkins is not meek. He is not gentle. He's irascible. He's, 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 uh, he's a blasphemer. He, he's, he's, he's caustic to listen to. And yet, he thinks he can win arguments that way. Well, I, I think we're all, I think we can all be very thankful for the demeanor of men like John Lennox and William Lane Craig, who remained gentlemen and who remained gentle through all of the, all of the abuse that they take from these unbelievers and these godless men. Let us be that way as well. Now, that, having said all that, I do want to move to the point that there is a place for evidence and for arguments in a believer's life as he or she interacts with either unbelievers or other believers who need encouragement and strengthening. 
The Bible itself uses apologetics. It uses, uh, as I mentioned, a presuppositional apologetics, which I'm going to talk about briefly. It uses some evidential apologetics, and we're going to come up with a third category, classical apologetics. Now you say, what's all that about? Well, it's just a useful way to kind of divide the kinds of arguments that can be used to defend the Christian faith into three basic categories. One category is a little bit esoteric, a little bit more difficult, and you don't recognize as easily the people who have been identified with this in the last few years, but Cornelius Van Til, John Frame, and the late Greg Bonson would be presuppositional apologists, okay? Hang on to that one for a minute. We're putting this on the desk right here for a moment. Uh, Moving on. Then we have the evidential apologists. These would be the Josh McDowell types, right? Or I maybe date myself, the William Lane Craig types. Uh, Although Craig is a little bit also classical, so these are not pure categories. But basically what you're doing is you're going to use history, and you're going to use uh, geology. You could use uh, in the terms of creation evolution, but I mean you're going to use evidence that's in books that can be learned that support the Christian position. And then classical apologetics is kind of the philosophical arguments, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, the ontological argument, and we could expand on those. I think you at least have heard of these as to why God exists. And these have been classic discussions that have been held, and there's point and counterpoint, but I think anyone who looks at that fairly would come up with the conclusion that, just as the Bible does, these are strong evidences for belief in God. In fact, there is no excuse for anyone who says that they do not provide adequate reason to believe in the existence of God. The Bible uses the cosmological argument, for example. We have a cosmos. We have an effect. It's called the universe. What is the cause of that effect? You cannot have a causeless effect. And therefore, if the universe began, and it must have begun, it had to have a beginner. That's just very elementary. And so the Bible, uh, whether we look at it indirectly, David looking up at the Psalms, or if we, as one of our brothers quoted today from Romans chapter 1, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. They're manifested so that we might understand two things about God, his eternal power, and his divine nature. We know this is an all-wise God. We know this is an all-powerful God. And by implication, if he made everything, and he's perfectly wise and powerful, I'm accountable to him. I can gather all of that just by looking at a night sky. And I'm responsible before him to come to that conclusion. So the Bible is not afraid to use that kind of argument for the existence of God. But I would say the Bible's main evidences, and these are also, I think, very useful for us in gospel preaching in in general, are to use fulfilled prophecy and the proofs of the resurrection of Christ as the two cornerstones to argue that this book is true and that the salvation that we offer is valid and true. And the Bible itself will use those two methods, which we'll talk about perhaps in a minute. But let's go back to where we put uh, presuppositionalism over here, okay? So a presuppositional argument goes like this. <clears throat> there really are two types. One is the presupposition of logic, and the other is the presupposition of the authority of Scripture. So let's say a person comes to you and wants to argue with you about the existence of God. In order to frame that argument and to start 
making a logical sequence of thought, that person must use logic. But then how does that person who does not believe in God account for that logic? That person may believe something is right and another thing is wrong and may argue that how could a God of love allow suffering in the world? But in doing so, that person has agreed that there is an objective moral value. There is goodness and there is evil. And he's now accusing God of evil, but he, by doing that, must affirm that goodness and evil are objective. Now, whether we're talking about truth, that is logic, things that can't be assailed for his principles, or whether we're talking about morality, neither of those can be explained by materialism. They do not come out of atoms and molecules. They are not part of the laws that govern planetary motion. They are transcendent. They require a transcendent being. Therefore, a person to argue against my God, he must borrow my God to argue against him. For a person to assail my worldview, he must borrow my worldview in order to try to refute it. Because from his world's view, his worldview point, his worldview point, two words, he has no basis for making such an argument. His worldview does not allow for any objective truth, nor any objective value. Therefore, why would he, first of all, be opposed to them? What is it that drives a man like Richard Dawkins to spend all of this effort, besides to become famous and wealthy, that's the cynical view, but really, is there something that's driving him to think that this is somehow a good that he is accomplishing, when his worldview has no basis for right or wrong, and no basis for good or evil. What does he care if people are deceived throughout the world? What's wrong with deception? Who cares if all these Christians are duped? What's wrong with being duped? His worldview has no way to say that that's right or wrong. So he is, he's a Christian atheist. You understand what I mean by that? And they all are. Anyone who argues logically must be a Christian atheist because they're assuming the Christian worldview. Now, you think about that, and it really makes a lot of sense. It's not the kind of thing you can use with Jill or Tammy or, or Sue or, or Joe or Peter on the street too easily because they don't think in those terms necessarily. Not everyone is a philosopher. I'm reminded of, yes, I was at the dentist the, a couple of years ago, and the hygienist asked me if I was a philosopher. I thought about it, and I said, well... I guess I am, in a way. I'm not a professional philosopher, but I like to think about the big questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. I'm not sure I said all this, but I'm thinking, you know. And she looked at me funny, and she said, no, I said, are you a flosser? <laughs> I said, I said uh, oh, I said, flosser. Well, I tried. I tried my best. But anyway, I guess we're all philosophers, aren't we? We should all be philosophers, too, according to her. Um, and those are the big questions. Christianity, worldview, and we're going to talk about this a little bit probably on the weekend, does deal with those big topics. What may I know? What can I know for sure? What should I do? What should I be doing? What may I hope? What's at the end of the road? Those are the three big questions. I've also given you an outline of four questions, which is, you know, meaning and, um, but uh, let me just do it with three because I'm going to take two together because the Bible has a perfect answer for all three of them. What may I know? 
That's the subject. Uh, the big word is epistemology, right? What can I know for sure? And I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. The only thing you can know for sure are the things that God tells you. Anything else is not known, absolutely. But what God tells you is known, absolutely. Now, some people say, yes, God is, is perfectly true, but here I am, a fallible creature. How do I know that I have received the truth properly from him when I read it in his word? And the answer to that is God is not only a perfect source of truth, he is a perfect communicator. He sees to it that his truth is transferred through his, his scriptures by the Spirit of God. What may I know? Faith. What should I do? What should I be doing with my life? What is life about? The answer from the Bible? Love. Bible ethics. We have epistemology, Bible faith, what we may know for sure, provided by the scriptures in our worldview. We have what we should be doing today, serving the Lord and serving our neighbor. Love as the answer to the great second question, what should I do? And now you're ahead of me and you've got the third one already. Hope. What may I hope? What about my destiny? What's in the future? The Bible gives us the full answer to all of those things. Faith, hope, and love are the whole sum and substance of our worldview. And we can give that to people because we have the authority of Scripture. So a presuppositionalism, as I'm going back to that uh, touchstone where we began here, has to do with logic and values when we argue with people. The other kind of presupposition that the Scripture itself uses is to assume that the Word of God is true. Now, we don't, wouldn't assume that without reason. The Bible never asks us to make a leap into the dark. We are never expected to believe things that are pointless, groundless, and without any evidence whatsoever. We are asked to believe things for which we cannot know evidence because, for example, they may be future or they may be spiritual. How would we know those were true? Well, we would know them as true because they came from the one who is truth. And if God has shown that he is absolutely reliable and dependable in every other area... And now he asks us to believe something that we can't verify immediately. We're going to believe it because we trust our source. That is not leaping into the dark. That is stepping into the light of revelation. So when we're dealing with an unbeliever in a gospel meeting, perhaps publicly speaking or one-on-one, well, we should not just say to them, I know in your heart you really believe the Bible. I mean, you can say that if you want because maybe the Lord will use such a direct approach. But... You just start affirming the truth, like Paul on Mars Hill. In fact, maybe just for a second, we could refresh our memories on that rather short but important section in Acts chapter 17. Paul is waiting in Athens, but instead of touring the Parthenon or going down to get a chartered boat for fishing in the Aegean Sea, he uses his spare time to preach, which, of course, is inspiring for us as well. He's waiting in Athens. His spirit is stirred within him. He sees all this idolatry. And so he begins to reason. And this, the, the, an important verse here is 17. Therefore he disputed, that's the dialegomai, the, the, the idea of dialoguing, right? Of conversing with people, of engaging them, presumably in small groups or one-on-one. Uh, he will also preach publicly as he does later. But he's disputing with them. Disputing doesn't mean they always disagree, but it means they're having dialogue about what's true. In the synagogue, of course, initially with the Jews, but also with devout persons 
and in the market daily, so that brings the Gentiles in as well. And it's very clear when they talk about what Paul has been preaching that they understand something about Jesus and they understand something about resurrection because they bring these words up. So clearly that has been the focus of his message. He's preaching the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead. And now Paul takes this opportunity. So let's look down at verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Notice the authority of this. No apology in the old sense of the word, but an apology in the Bible sense of the word. Him declare I unto you. He's just telling it like it is. He's going to tell them about God. That's something I meant to do at the beginning, but I'll do do it right now. The modern use of apology and the Bible use of apology are actually diametrically different. Because now if you talk about an apology, you're saying this is a regretful admission of some failure or fault on my part. I'm sorry. Okay, You're not, you're not being sorry when you give a Bible apology. Uh, the great <clears throat> word apologia was used in classical Greek, maybe the great example of that as told by Plato had to do with Socrates. Socrates was accused of corrupting the youth of Athens. And he was accused of teaching them about deities that were not accepted in the Athenian pantheon. And so he was called to account and he had to give an answer to the fathers of the city. That answer was not satisfactory at the end and he ended up being uh, assassinated, you might say, although he did it himself by drinking hemlock, it said. So that story gives us a background of a classic example of a person who in a court of law, this is in a legal setting, is now asked after the accusations have been made and after the prosecutor has laid out his, his case, now the mic, if you will, in the modern sense, goes to this person. This is your opportunity. You tell it. You tell us why you should be exonerated. You tell us why you're innocent. You tell us why you've done what you've done or why you believe what you believe. This is your chance. That's your apology. So it's done with confidence and assurance. And the apostle is giving an apology right now to these people of Athens. So he affirms God. He doesn't argue for his existence. He just tells it like it is. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with with hands. He's not worshipped with men's hands. As though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all men, to all rather life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Now, so far, he has just, in a very sweeping way, told the whole story of the God of the Bible and of the Old Testament history up to that point. He's shown that they're, obviously, with direct statements, that their beliefs are wrong, that God is not an idol that's made or carved out of an image. He can't be contained inside of a human building. He can't be manipulated by human worship. He is a God who is transcendent. He's made all things and... He is the one who is close to those who seek him. Then, you know, I think as a good tactician, he's going to quote a couple of their local poets to show that this some of this information is well known. I think there are, there are, there are reasons sometimes we can use uh, truth from other systems to show that things that are generally believed is true and can be accepted. Remember, only the Christian worldview is truth, the truth. 
But there is truth in every other system. Otherwise, people wouldn't believe it. That may be quite limited in some of the cases, but there are things that I think you can find as common ground, is my point. But no other system has the truth, therefore there is salvation in no other system. Ultimately, it is the identity of Christ and personal faith in him that allows a person to be made right with God and no other religion. I mean, this is a different topic. I shouldn't move into that at this point, and I know you all know this. Every other religion religion is a religion of do. Ours is a religion of done, right? Every other religion, man tries to work his way up to God. In ours, God has come down in the person of his son to us. It's absolutely different. There are only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement and the religion of the religion of divine accomplishment. So let's be clear about that. And Paul's being very clear about that as well here. He's telling them about this God. So he commands to cut this, this we're drawing short on time. He, he the times of this ignorance, he says in verse thirty, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof we have, he hath given assurance unto all men and that he hath raised him from the dead. So he's concluding not only a speech here on Mars Hill, which may be a complete speech or may just be Luke's synopsis of it, but he's also comp- completing several days of preaching in the marketplace and in the synagogue. This is his final call to these people. They know about Jesus. They know about the resurrection. They know about sin. They know about the falseness of their worship. They know that the God who is overall is the one to whom they are accountable. They know he is going to judge the world in righteousness. They know that the Lord Jesus will be that judge. And now he's asking for a response. Some mocked. Some said, we'll hear you again of this matter. Some believed. It's no different today. Some mock. Some postpone. Some believe. So it's a great example, I think, of a Christian apology In this case, he's not giving his personal testimony as much, but he's giving an answer for the reason of the hope that is within him from Scripture. Now, what about the use of evidential apologetics, where we do learn about the proofs of the resurrection? We get really good at the idea of explaining fulfilled prophecy, and we talk about the odds of that happening by chance. Or we become very versed in a creation-evolution kind of debate, and we're able to take down our opponents but then we have to remember this has to be done with meekness and fear, and it has to be by sanctifying the Lord and God in our hearts. So it isn't just about the arguments, but let's say we... Is there any role for that? I think there is. I think there are some people who are honest seekers who really do have a problem for which there is an answer, and they're open to hearing that answer. You could begin a dialogue. Uh, some have compared this to the John 11 story where the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, take away the stone. Now, why didn't he just vaporize the stone? He was going to show them the power he had over the death. Why doesn't he just, you know, blow open the sepulcher and have the body come out? And when the body's out, why doesn't he have it just spin on its axis and all the grave clothes just come right off? (laughs) Well, he doesn't do what he doesn't need to do. Men can clear away the stones. Men can take away the grave clothes but only Christ can raise him from the dead. So when we're trying to see someone converted, we can't convert them, but we can take away the stones. So again, you have to understand there is such a thing as an honest seeker or an open-minded person, and there's everybody else, all right? So you're looking for that open-minded, honest seeker. 
And in that case, knowing some of these things is very going to be very useful for you. As well, as I've said a number of times, and I want to affirm this again, to me, the greatest value for Christian apologetics is to invigorate and um, strengthen and encourage and motivate people who already believe because they're being bombarded with the error all around us and they feel like they're the only one left, like the like Elijah in, in Romans chapter 11. I'm the only one left. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know about them, but I know about them. They're out there, right? And the same goes if I would lump them together just for the sake of time. Obviously, the classical arguments for the existence of God, that might have, there may be a place where that will play well when someone is willing to discuss it as a starting point to later on getting them to the truth of the message that they really need to learn. Well, I'll end with John Whitcomb again. That man, if I didn't finish the story, was saved in that dorm room. He said, I don't know about Jonah and the whale. All I know is that what I've heard today is exactly what I need. John uh, Whitcomb was in World War II. He was in the 909 artillery um, in the Battle of the Ardennes or the Bulge. And he tells a story that he thinks is a great illustration of First Peter 3.15. He says, we're in enemy territory. We are bringing them a message and they're not willing to hear it. So how do we get this done? Well, he says, it's like the forward observer who's responsible to tell the guns behind the enemy line where to fire. So they had 105 millimeter howitzers in this division. This is a little bit of a violent analogy. We're not trying to shoot people with shells, but we're trying to reach them with a power that we don't have. That's, that's, that's the illustration. So the forward observer, usually a second lieutenant or someone of that rank, would move past the middle, you know, the no man's land into enemy territory, frankly, right into the enemy territory because he had to know exactly where the troops were. These were people who usually went alone. Uh, sometimes they had methods of communication. They had to have methods of communication, sometimes bringing wire along with them. They would get up into the second story of a house or something. And once they saw where the enemy was concentrated, they needed to get that back to the men who were operating the guns. Now, they had three options. This is Whitcomb's point. Number one, they could have pulled out their pistols and run out at the enemy themselves and just started to shoot. And that would have gotten them nowhere. Or they could panic. And they could just shrink away into the woods. Or they could sanctify the field artillery in their hearts. Okay, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. They sent the message back. And then the guns were adjusted, and usually the first shells would come over, and of course they would miss. These were smoke shells and range finders. But they would get closer and closer and closer until they zeroed in on the enemy, and then the armor-piercing shells would be used. Now, again, not the great analogy uh, in some ways, because we're not trying to, to destroy people, we're trying to save them. But his point is that there is a power that is needed that I don't have, but I have been called to go into the enemy line. I am not to panic. I am not to do it in my own power. I am simply to deliver the apologetic. I am to sanctify the Lord in my heart. He is the one who is going to do the work. And I just need to be faithful. So, thank you for spending these minutes with me. I'll summarize what I've said. Although I think apologetics in the classic sense that we hear it, hear it is the arguments that 
tell us the Bible is true, Jesus is the Son of God, salvation is available through him, every other system is false. This is all important stuff. But the most important thing you can do to change this world one person at a time is to live your Christian life before people and when they ask you, tell them how you were saved. And tell them how you have come to know the God of the Bible is reliable. And God will use that in a mighty way.